0: Luke chapter 11 was first the woman just cried out spontaneously. It says a certain woman just cried out spontaneously, and this is what she said. She said, You know, blessed is the woman who gave birth to you and who nursed you, you know, at her breast. And what did Jesus reply? He said, Blessed are those who hear and keep the word of God. Now, the woman fully intended that as a compliment. She was someone who had heard the word of God and wanted to respond in this way that was very complimentary. And Jesus sort of gave her somewhat of a correction, but we understand her heart was complimentary towards Jesus. Then immediately after that, some people came to Jesus and they wanted him to perform more signs or greater signs than Jesus had performed before. And Jesus rebuked them. Matter of fact, Jesus called them an evil and a wicked generation. So keep those two things in in mind, the woman who praised him and the unbelieving people who asked for a sign and for more evidence as if Jesus had not already told them enough. Keep that in mind as we take a look now at chapter 11, verse 33. Jesus says, no one, when he has lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket but on a lampstand that those who come in may see the light. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Therefore, take heed that the light that is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. So previously in Luke chapter 11, Jesus cast a demon out of a man, a man who was mute, and after that stupendous miracle, some people looked at Jesus and they said, he does it by the power of the devil, which is a terrible thing to say. Then a woman praised him. Then other people asked for more signs. And now I believe Jesus, addressing all three of those groups, he says this, No one, when he's lit a lamp, puts it in a secret place or under a basket, but on the lampstand, just as a lamp should be displayed out in the open so that all can benefit from its light. So the word and the work of God should be displayed. And Jesus is saying, I am displaying my words. I'm displaying my works. My lamp is lit. Hey, you people who called me a demon or that I was operating by the power of demons, look at my light. You you woman who thought that praise should be given to my mother, look at my light, and you'll see that praise should be given to those who hear and keep my word. Hey, you who ask for a sign, can't you see the light that is shining already? You see, some people saw the brightness of Jesus' light, like the woman who called him blessed. Some people did not see it like those who associated him with the devil. And other people thought that the light wasn't bright enough like those who asked for more and more signs. But please understand, Jesus constant example. says, I'm going to keep shining on the light. Some people will see it. Some people won't. And some people will ask for more. But I am just going to keep shining this light that God the father has given me. And I'm not going to hide it in the least. And then he said something remarkable in verse thirty four. He said that the lamp of the body is the eye. Now, this might sound like a strange analogy to you, but actually it makes tremendous sense. It's strange because this, we know that a lamp is something that puts out light. We know that the eye is something that receives light, but both of them illuminate. If the lamp is out, there's darkness and you can't see. If your eye is no good, it doesn't matter. If the sun is shining in the glory of its new day strength, you are blind. So just as a bad eye will make a person blind, so a bad heart will make somebody spiritually blind. And, and you know what? You've got to be spiritually blind To look at the work of Jesus and say, he does it by the power of Satan. You've got to be spiritually, how was I going to say this? You've got to have poor spiritual sight. Maybe you're not completely blind, but you've got very poor spiritual sight. If you look at Jesus and you say, do more miracles. And you know what? Your vision isn't all that great if you look at Jesus and his work and think that the praise belongs to his mother. So Jesus is correcting these things with this very engaging sort of illustration. You see, to ignore the work of Jesus right in front of your eyes says something about you. I mean, think about it. If somebody lives in darkness, there's two possible reasons. Here's the two possible reasons. One, number one, there is no light source. You walk into a dark room and what? You're blind. Well, there's no mystery to that. The room's dark. But there's another reason why you may be blind. There may be plenty of light in the room, but there's something wrong with you and you can't perceive it. If the darkness is in you, you are in a lot of trouble. Because you know what? It doesn't matter how brightly the light shines. And if you can't see Jesus for who he is, it says something about you. If you can't see and appreciate Jesus for who he is, I'm gonna say this as kind as I can, but as directly as I, as I must, you're messed up. You're blind. The problem is not with Jesus. And I want you to think about this. There's some darkness within you if you can't see Jesus for who he is. It might be a darkness of the mind, it might be a darkness of the heart, it might be the darkness of sin, it might be a darkness of the soul but there's something messed up inside of you. I like what Charles Spurgeon said along these lines. He said this, Do you wonder that our Lord seemed to hold up his hands in astonishment? As he said, If the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? If that which should lead misleads, how misled will you be? If your better part turns out to be evil, how evil must you be? And that was exactly the spiritual condition of these people who were rejecting and doubting Jesus were in. That's why he says this. Notice it in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, then your whole body will be full of light. When the light of God's word shines, when the word and the work of Jesus is understood, then one does not walk in the darkness of spiritual blindness. You have light within yourself. You see, this is what I want you to understand. Jesus is saying here that if the light of God fills your life, you see things differently. You know who the greatest example of this ever is? Jesus himself. No one was as ever filled with light as Jesus was. Do we agree on that? I I don't think that's a debatable proposition. And no one ever saw things the way Jesus saw them. Jesus could look at a mustard seed and say, there's the kingdom. Jesus could look at a harlot and see a worshiper. Jesus could look at Simon Peter and see a rock. Jesus could look at a son of thunder who wanted to destroy a city and see a man of love. Jesus could look at a child and see the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus could look at a bit of bread and say, this is my broken body. Nobody ever saw things the way Jesus did. Why? Because he was filled with the light of God. Now, we need some of this in us, don't we? We need the ability to really be able to perceive things as God perceives them. And this is why more and more our plea needs to be, God, fill me with your light. Fill me with your word. As the psalmist said, send out your light and truth and let them lead me, Lord. What a great prayer. This needs to be our prayer more and more. Now, Jesus is going to start laying into the Pharisees starting at verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Can you just stop right there? I'm I'm pretty impressed by that personally. A certain Pharisee came and asked, this is a time of rising conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. And yet a Pharisee comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you like to come over to my house for dinner? What do you think Jesus would say? Ah, icky Pharisee, get away from me. No, Jesus didn't do anything like that. I'll start again from verse 37. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. What did Jesus do when a Pharisee invited him to dinner? He said, He Thank you very much. I'll be over. You know what's so funny about this? Track with me. I, I got to think that this Pharisee regretted this invitation. <laughs> it doesn't turn out too good if you're throwing a dinner party and you're the Pharisee. Just, just, I just want you to envision this. All that Jesus says between now and the end of the chapter, he says at a dinner party. Okay, so put yourself there at the dinner party. There's the Pharisee, very pleased to have the honored guest there. Here's Jesus, an esteemed rabbi. A little bit controversial, but we're happy he's here. And then, you know, well, let's. what's the discussion going to be in the evening? Well, let's check it out. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, now, you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Please pass the peas. <laughs> I, <laughs> I <don't>, I just... <laughs> Foolish ones, did not he who make the outside make the inside also, but rather give alms of such things as you have? Indeed, all things are clean to you. May I have some salt, please? I, this Isn't this great? Okay, now look, I, I got to say that, <coughs> I don't know. I, it's funny. You think while you're preaching. Believe it or not, sometimes you do. I was going to say that the Pharisees started it. No, Jesus started it. Jesus walked in, and he did not observe the rituals of hand washing. If your little boy comes in and says, Mommy, I don't have to wash my hands because Jesus didn't. You know, don't think he's a little Bible scholar here. Go send him to wash his hands. Because we're not talking about an offense to good hygiene here. What we're talking about is an offense to Jewish rituals. We're not even talking about an offense to a biblical command. But the Jews had certain rabbinical rituals regarding the washing of hands. That's why it says right there in verse 38, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. I mean, there are all the guests are in and doing the ceremonial washings and all the things. And Jesus just walks by. Jesus probably looked at his hands. And, no, they're fine. They're clean. Okay, good. Let's go sit down and eat. And like the the Pharisee can't believe this. He's, he just sat down at the table. He didn't, he didn't stop. He didn't. His mind is blown by this. Now, William Barclay, in his commentary, describes how they did these ceremonial washings. First of all, they set aside special stone vessels of water because you know regular water might get contaminated in some way. And then in performing the ceremonial washing, you started with at least enough water to fill one and a half eggshells. That was the minimum. So just a little bit of water there. And then what you did is you poured the water over your hands starting at the fingers and running down the wrists. Then you did one paw, one fist into another like this, and then you ran the water the other way from the wrists down off the end of the fingers, and then you were ceremonial clean. Um, Jews today follow similar customs, and if you go to Israel, you see washing stations with certain pails. It's interesting. You look at the pails that they use for washing at these ceremonial, they always have two handles because it's important to use one handle for one thing and another handle for another thing. And so you'll see this dotted all over Israel and other places where there's a large number of Orthodox Jews who take these washings. Now, back then, a really strict Jew would not only do this before the meal, but he would also wash in the same ceremonial way in between each course of the meal. The soup was good, let me go wash my hands. The salad was great, wash it again. They would do it between each course. And the rabbis were deadly serious about this. They said that bread eaten with unwashed hands was no better than excrement. That's what they believed. A rabbi who once failed to perform these ceremonial washings was considered excommunicated, And another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans and instead of using his little ration of water for drinking, he used it for ceremonially washing his hands and he nearly died of thirst, but he was regarded as a tremendous hero among the observant Jews. Now, if these religious leaders were as concerned about cleansing their hearts as they were about their hands, they would have been more godly men. And oftentimes, we want to look at a ceremony or a ritual to cleanse us instead of the sacrificial work of God on our behalf. But Jesus wasn't of that mentality. So deliberately, he bypassed the hand-washing station, sat down to eat, like it says there in verse 37. So he went in and sat down to eat. He accepted the invitation. Okay, I'll do it, but I'll do it with unwashed hands. And in verse 38, he marveled at it. And what was Jesus' response? Verse 39, now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the dish clean. Can't you just picture Jesus holding up a cup as he says this? You make the outside of the dish and the cup clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. This is the problem. These Pharisees, these religious leaders, they were very careful to maintain an exterior of religious cleanliness and purity and impressiveness. But on the inside, they were sinful and corrupt. All they cared about was the image of spirituality. This has huge application to us today. It has application, first of all, to anybody who's in Christian service or who aspires to be a Christian leader. If you aspire to be a Christian leader in any way, you must give attention not only to your outward life, which is important, but you must also give great attention to your inward life and the inward purity. But it has application to each and every person, even those who have no direct aspiration to Christian leadership, especially, I would say, in our American, and dare I say, in our Southern California culture. And this is what I mean by it. In our Southern California culture, we are so impressed by, and we are so in love with, image. And oftentimes, it doesn't matter whether a man or a woman is genuinely spiritual. All that matters is if they have the image of spirituality. It doesn't matter if you really walk with the Lord. What matters is, do you have the image? Do people think you walk with the Lord? It won't cut it. The outside of the cup isn't enough. No, the inside of the cup has to be pure as well. I'm thinking it's right about this time when the Pharisee was thinking, was it smart for me really to invite this guy to dinner? Jesus was just warming up. Think of all this taking place at a dinner party starting here at verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees! for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without ever leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. I picture everybody else at the dinner party being in stunned silence as Jesus lays it on the Pharisees. But please understand, Jesus isn't just angry. He didn't have a bad day. He's not just venting. He's speaking a holy word of God that these religious leaders desperately needed to hear. This was life or death. It's almost as if Jesus, through his word, is offering them an invitation. Will you Listen to this correction that I offer you. I know it's not pleasant for you to hear, but I'm offering you strong, good correction, Pharisees. Will you listen to it and live? Might I say by analogy, doesn't God do that with us all the time? Doesn't God speak to you and I all the time and offer us some place of correction, some place of guidance in our life? And he looks at us, will you listen to me and live? Well, let's take a look at what the Pharisees would do a little bit later on. But first, let us understand what Jesus said. In verse 42, 43, and 44, what does he say? But woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Jesus spoke harshly, but it wasn't the language of personal irritation or annoyance. He's not just venting, as I said before. No, he's speaking in the vocabulary and in the cadence of the Old Testament prophets. That's how he's speaking to these men. And how does he say it? Verse 42 Woe to you, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass by justice and the love of God. These religious leaders were meticulous in the way that they tithed. They would literally do something like this I have an herb garden with dill seeds or something like that in the backyard. And I'll count out nine for me, one for the Lord. Nine for me, one for the Lord. Now I know in a lot of churches people say, "Oh, praise God for such diligent tithers." No, no, listen, listen. They were doing that, but they were in a far worse situation because while they meticulously tithed, they neglected weightier things in their life before God. They were so careful in the outward obedience but yet they were so casual in the inward significance. You see, this kind of legalism that people have, it assumes that people will only know if we follow God, if we meticulously keep the rules and make it as public as possible that we keep all those rules. But you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, no, the first mark of a believer is love in your life. Matter of fact, I'll say this, you know, if you... If you are a tither, if you do give the way God wants you to give in your life, but if you're not a man or a woman of love, God would have you address that first. Now, I do want you to notice what Jesus said here. He said it very plainly in verse 42. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. No, there was nothing wrong with their tithing. It was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. But no, let's understand this. God wants your heart first. God wants your heart given to him, not just to him, but in the way that you love others. Did you notice what it says there? He says, you shouldn't have left these other things undone. Or I like how it says it, you've neglected justice and the love of God. Why don't you give a little attention to how you treat other people? You know, just just theoretically, you can just picture a person in your mind's eye, not a Pharisee centuries ago, but a person in the modern day. Oh, they're meticulous in the way that they observe this law and that law. But you know what? They're just a mean, unloving person. You say, wouldn't God have them address that fundamental character in their life first to be a man of love, a woman of love and justice? Now, that was the first aspect. He rebuked them because of their obsession over those things. But look at the next thing in verse 43. You love the best seats in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces, Do you know what the best seats were in the synagogue? They were the seats up front, and they were the seats where everybody could see you, the places where you could have some note, some attention drawn to yourself, but then also the greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, don't you love to have the elaborate greetings? Oh, bless you, beautiful rabbi, blah, blah, blah. You're so wonderful. You're so spiritual. On and on, honored and blessed and revered, brother, on and on and on. You know what this was all about? These religious leaders thought it was wonderful when they were treated like celebrities. And they thought that being spiritual was a great way to draw attention to themselves and seek after some celebrity status. Ladies and gentlemen, that should be a million miles away from anybody who wants to be a leader or a spiritual man or woman among God's people. Why don't you just forget about your dreams of fame or celebrity and just let the Lord do whatever he wants to do. If God wants to keep you in obscurity, then rejoice in your obscurity. If God raises you up to some kind of visibility for a season, well, then praise the Lord for that, but don't ever expect it to last. It comes and it goes, doesn't it? But I praise the Lord that our usefulness and our ability to honor God doesn't depend on our celebrity status. And this is a current that runs deep, deep in the Christian culture of America in the 21st century. There's something about us that's drawn to this celebrity status and our celebrity culture, and we need to be able to put some distance between ourselves and it. Jesus proclaimed a woe to people who were in love with that. Then verse 44. Wow, if you thought he was going to lighten up, you're in for disappointment. He says, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Do you know what a hypocrite was literally? In the ancient Greek language, a hypocrite refers to somebody who is an actor, Someone who wears a mask. They have an image of one thing on the outside, but behind the mask, there's something else. And Jesus says, that's you guys. You only care about the image, the outward mask. The reality is irrelevant to you. Therefore, he says to them in verse 44, for you are like graves which are not seen and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. These religious leaders, they loved giving the impression that they were ever so spiritual, and somehow just by coming in contact with somebody as spiritual as me, you can become spiritual too. Don't you just love being near me so that you can rub off on some of my great spirituality? And Jesus said, no. You know what you're like? You're like a walking corrupter. You're like a tomb that when people come in contact with you, they're defiled. They're not made more Pure. They're defiled by your love of celebrity status. They're defiled by your uh, worship of image only and not the spiritual reality. They're defiled by your hypocrite nature. Man, this is strong, strong stuff. And I imagine that after Jesus said this, the dinner party is in a stunned silence. Wouldn't you imagine that? I mean, I know I'm letting the movie run in my head a little bit, but grant me a little bit stunned silence at the dinner party then and I don't, know, I don't want to make any lawyer jokes here but it's a little irresistible when you start at verse 45 would you look at it with me verse 45 then one of the lawyers answered and said to him uh, teacher by saying these things you reproach us also <laughs> isn't that rich Jesus pours out the woes upon the Pharisees and then includes the scribes for their religious hypocrisy. It's silent in the dinner, just awkward silence. Everybody's, you know, picking at their food for just a little bit in this. And then a lawyer says essentially this, "Um, Jesus, you, you don't mean us, too, do you? And she says, don't get me started. He said, woe to you also, lawyers. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Wow. Now, it would be genuinely inappropriate to start throwing out lawyer jokes right here because the application isn't the same. When we think of a lawyer, we think of somebody usually who argues a point of law or defends a point of law in a court case, you know, somebody who's on your side, prosecutor, defense, something like that. That's really not the idea here. Here, the lawyer was somebody who was an expert in the Mosaic law. And being an expert in the Mosaic law, they could tell you where the law applied and where the law didn't. In other words, they were in charge of a person saying, okay, the law applies in this case, But it doesn't apply in this case. You are bound under the law here, but you are loosed under the law there. That's what the lawyers did. And Jesus said, no. Look at it right there in verse 46. For you load men with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The way that they interpreted the law, these experts in the Mosaic law, put heavy burdens upon people, yet with elaborate evasions and loopholes. You might have heard me say this before, but it's a great illustration of the truth. On the Sabbath, it was forbidden to tie a knot. Okay? Only slip-ons or sandals on the Sabbath. You couldn't use your tie-up, your lace-up shoes. Except there was one knot that could be tied on the Sabbath. A woman could tie a knot in her girdle to keep it together. I guess they figured, well, you know, a woman needs to keep her girdle together or something like that. I don't really know. So what would you do if you needed to draw water from the well, but you had to tie the rope to the bucket to get water from the well? You can't tie the rope to the bucket because that would be breaking the Sabbath. So what do you do? Uh, I know what I'll do. I'll tie my wife's girdle to the bucket and then I'll tie the other end of it to the rope and those are knots I can make. And the lawyers would say, bravo, bravo. But do you see what it was? On the one hand, you're putting these oppressive laws on people that distort the meaning of the Sabbath and just make things... You're you're making the traditions of man into the laws of God, and that's a wretched thing. But then here's the second thing you're doing. You're giving people these evasive loopholes where they can get through, and if you're clever enough, you can find your way around just about any law. Listen, they were wrongly using the Scriptures as a tool of control and oppression, all the while evading their responsibility before God. And to do so today, put somebody under the same woe and condemnation that Jesus pronounced to these lawyers. Now, verse 47, he's not done. Woe to you. And now I think Jesus is speaking to the whole room. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. In fact, you bear witness that you approve of the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, the wisdom of God also said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the temple. Yes, I say to you, it shall be required of this generation. It's a startling thing that Jesus said to them starting at verse 47. Woe to you, you build the tombs of the prophets and your fathers killed them. And the implication is you're just like your fathers. Oh, you know how to honor the dead prophets, but the living ones, right? Your midst. What do you do? You kill them all afresh. And just like he said in verse 48, you approve of the deeds of your fathers. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you don't fall into the trap that I sometimes fall into. I'll confess this before It's a trap that sometimes I fall into. And God helping me, I'm going to do it less and less. But sometimes when I read the Bible, I read it with this kind of attitude that says, well, I wouldn't have done that. Boy, that was stupid of them. Boy, you know, gee, how could they be so unspiritual? Boy, you know, do, do you ever find yourself reading the Bible like that? And this is what they were basically doing. Oh, our fathers, they killed the prophets. Boy, that's, we'll build tombs to them. Jesus said, no, you have the same heart, the same spirit. And this is where we need God to speak to our heart and give us a humility of heart as well to realize that without the grace of God helping us, we're just as bad as our fathers before us. And so much so that Jesus said, verse 49, he said, I'll send them prophets and apostles and some of them, They will kill and persecute. Jesus is looking around the room and he's looking at some of the future persecutors of his church. Can I throw out a wild speculation to it? It's just a wild speculation. I have no doubt that as Jesus looked around the room at that dinner party, he looked at some men who would be future persecutors of his people I wonder if he laid his eyes on a prominent, rising young Pharisee named Saul of Tarsus. Isn't it possible? Nobody's trying to say of certainty, but we know he was looking at some future persecutors and maybe among them was Saul of Tarsus. And Jesus says this with sorrow in his heart. I'm going to send you prophets. I'm going to send you apostles. But some of them you're going to kill and you're going to persecute. Why? Look at it there in verse 50. That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. This was a remarkable condemnation from Jesus. He was saying that all the prophets that had been rejected before, it doesn't compare to those who will reject me, Jesus is saying, and the apostles and prophets that I sent forth to you. Listen, as bad as it was to reject that long list of prophets beginning at Abel and ending in Zechariah, as bad as all of that was, none of it compared to how terrible it was to reject the messengers and the institutors of the new covenant. That was a far more guilty crime. And that with sorrow in his heart is what Jesus said they would, in fact, do. If you notice this? He says in verse 51 from the blood of Abel, from the blood of Zechariah. Here he is speaking of all the righteous martyrs of the Old Testament. Now, Abel was clearly the first. You remember Abel? Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve, the brother to Cain, the first man who was murdered, the first man who was murdered, shall we say it very directly, for righteousness' sake. Why did Cain hate Abel? Because Abel's sacrifice was accepted before God because of faith, and Cain's was not. That's why he was genuinely a martyr, all the way from Abel, all the way to Zechariah. Now, I I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Jesus, you're pretty clever there. You're doing A to Z. That's pretty good, Jesus. No, 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 no. That's not the idea. In the way that the Hebrew Bible was arranged... In the first book of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, the first book of Moses, Abel's the first one. In the last book in the arrangement of the Hebrew Bible is 2 Chronicles, and that in chapter 24 is where Zechariah was um, martyred. So Abel's blood cried out. This is what Genesis chapter 4 tells us. And Zechariah asked us, that his blood would be remembered in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 22. And do you see how Jesus is making sure that the plea of these righteous prophets is being honored? Your blood will be remembered, Zechariah. Your blood will be remembered, Abel. And all of those in between. I like what G. Campbell Morgan had to say about Jesus at this point. He said, one can almost feel the withering force of his strong and mighty indignation. Indignation directed not against the people, but against their false guides. And yet behind it all is his heart. And the woes merge into a wall of agony, a wail of agony, the cry of a mother over her lost child. Verse 52. This was their most terrible crime. Jesus saves it up for the last now. Woe to you, lawyers. I need to stop right there again and just remind you. (laughs) I'm just thinking of this right now. I, I don't know if it's entirely correct. Sometimes I trust it when I think on the fly and sometimes I don't. But really, since we're not talking about attorneys in a court of law, like we would think of with lawyers, I wonder if you should write in your margin right there next to lawyers, Bible teachers. Because these were the people who guided people and said, the word of God applies here. It doesn't apply there. That would maybe be the nearest equivalent that we have in our culture today. I've got to read this for myself. Woe to you, lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge You did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. Their approach to the Scriptures actually took away the key of knowledge from people. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see that the greatest responsibility of anybody who handles the Scriptures, whether they're teaching the toddlers, simple Bible stories, whether they're teaching in our Bible colleges or one of our classes, whether they're teaching here before this blessed and very receptive congregation, which I thank God for. But the primary responsibility is to open up the key of knowledge. This is what God says in his word. And if you walk away somehow having less understanding of God's word, less understanding of the words of text and i don't even know how to explain this but 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 i've heard teaching like that maybe i've been guilty of it from time to time but i know what this is like where it's almost it, you almost walk out with less bible knowledge than you walked in with you might know lots about other things but just of what the glorious text in itself says the story of the words themselves on the page, it somehow gets lost in the shuffle. And Jesus said, no, this is the worst condemnation I can tell you. You take away the key of knowledge. And then he says, verse 52, you did not enter in yourselves, and those who were entering in, you hindered. You had the words of life in your hand, and through them you could have entered in to a life and a walk with God that would be glorious. But not only did you fail to do that, but you also hindered other people from doing it. If you are determined to commit spiritual suicide, listen, I'll plead with you not to. I'll I'll pray with you not to. I'll I'll plead with you to value the the worth of your own soul and say no, to turn aside. But look, here's the point. If you want to commit spiritual suicide, that's one thing how infinitely worse a crime it is for you to drag others to hell with you. And that's what these men were guilty of doing. It's a far, far worse thing to hinder somebody from entering. Right. right, let's take a look at the last couple of verses of the chapter. Verse 53. And as he said these things to him, again, I, may I just remind you, we're still at a dinner party. And as he said these things to him to them the scribes and the Pharisees began to assail him vehemently and to cross-examine him about many things lying in wait for him and seeking to catch him in something he might say that they might accuse him Did, did they say I could just imagine the Pharisee who invited Jesus to this dinner Men We've heard our esteemed rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, say some searching and serious things to him. You may agree with some of what he said. You may agree with all what he said. But I think that maybe God has spoken to us here tonight, and we need to prayerfully consider what this esteemed rabbi has taught us. Is that how they reacted? Who are you to say such things to us? They assailed him vehemently. They started coming up with everything in the book. They started proverbially to throw the kitchen sink in him. Everything they could think, cross-examining him, accusing him, anything they could do just to deflect the guilt off of themselves and to put it on the very messenger of God who was speaking to them. They did not receive the correction Jesus brought to them. They preferred to stay in their own sinful thinking. This is exactly the challenge I want to bring to you now in conclusion. I I don't think there's anybody, well, listen, to be honest, perhaps positionally, maybe I'm the person in here who is most like these leaders. But I still think that this has application to you. And this is what I mean by this. How do you receive correction when Jesus brings it to you? Do you humbly receive it and, and react to it in a right way? Did you know that the book of Proverbs tells us What those who refuse correction do. Here's three steps to those who refuse correction. Number one, they hate those who correct them. Do not correct the scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he'll love you. That's Proverbs nine eight. But someone who doesn't receive correction will hate you for bringing it to him. Number two, a scoffer or those who do not receive correction will not listen to the one who corrects them. Look at it here. Uh, Proverbs 13.1, a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. I hate you. I won't listen to you. And now third, they despise their own soul. Proverbs 15.32 says, He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. That's precious. You see, Proverbs also tells us about the character of those people who refuse correction. First of all, they're stupid. Proverbs 12.1 says this, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. You know, the esteemed philosopher John Wayne once said, <laughs> he said this, Life is hard. It's a lot harder when you're stupid. It's true, isn't it? And one way to demonstrate our stupidity is to, re- is to refuse the correction that God brings to us. And then finally, they're not only stupid, they're foolish. Proverbs 15.5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Uh, When I did the Bible college in Germany, every semester we would have a semester theme. And one time, informally, I can't remember what our formal theme was, but one semester we were just kind of frustrated with some of the conduct of the students, so he said, you know what, here's our new theme for the semester, don't be stupid. (laughs) I don't know if it helped or not, but you know what, Isn't isn't that something I need to hear tonight, and maybe you do too. When God corrects us, we should listen. Father, that's my prayer. I think about what it would be like if I was there at this dinner party or if any of us were. Lord, maybe we would be the one or or one of the few who would actually listen and say, this man offends me, but there's something of the Spirit of God in what he says. And Jesus, that's how we want to look to you and to your word. We want to open up our hearts before you wide and say, speak to us, Lord, because we are listening and we love you, Jesus. And we ask that you would make us more open to your correction than we were yesterday and that tomorrow we would be more open than we were today. Help us, God. Help us to not be foolish and stupid.